Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Stormy Warren is a storytelling sage, country music aficionado, and a broadcast stalwart, and a good friend. CNN, TNN, GAC, and Sirius XM's The Highway. He's done more interviews than he can count. On the way through his journalistic journey, he's picked up a load of awards, including my favorite, the BMI Ambassador Award, for his never-ending support and promotion of Nashville songwriters. He was gracious enough to sit with me for an hour that buzzed by. Thanks, Stormy. As with most pet peeves, they really peeve me off. I don't know what happened to my microphone, but thankfully you can hear every word Stormy says, and after all, that's why we're here. So please be patient with me and dig into what Stormy's talking about. Here's Stormy Warren. Thinking and drinking, Stormy Warren. How are you, my friend? Man, I am honored to be here. It's good to see you. I, I can't wait to see you in the flesh, but I mean, but here we are in our little Zoom machine. I know it has been a long time. It's been a long time. Have you been doing your shows and all you do from that home studio right there? Or are you going into town every day? I have not seen my studio, the Sirius XM studio in the Bridgestone Arena since March 17th of 2020. Man. That's when they kicked us out. And I first I was in a little coat closet down here in my man cave and I took the door off and, and put the acoustic tiling in there. And I was like, I could do better than a closet without a door. And But I still did that for months. And then I realized that I had this room that was just storage. And so I just emptied all everything out and turned this, what used, was supposed to be like a home gym room. If you're just going to scan around. Nice. And then it's uh, worked out to be a perfect studio. Dude, that's killer. It's nice. It's a, I don't leave it a lot during the day. I mean, this is basically a windowless man cave that uh, it's just my cage. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my wife let me have the basement too. Right? Yeah. I have other things hanging on the walls. Yours are, yours are way more productive and make more money for you. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, man, you were born in Cincinnati. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, I didn't live there long. I only lived there about three years. I only have, you, you know, when you have those childhood memories that you trick yourself into thinking that you remember, but you've only seen them in pictures. Right. And they're like, Hey, I remember that pool. No, you don't. You remember seeing a picture of that pool and that's basically your memory of it. And uh, so that's basically my memory of Cincinnati. And then we moved to Boston when I was three and I have vivid memories of uh, Sherburn, Massachusetts outside of Boston from three to 10. And then we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Tulsa, Oklahoma is where I truly call home because I think wherever you went through puberty is home. <laughs> I've thought a lot about this, but that's the I, I had to ask myself, why do you consider Tulsa? You've lived everywhere. Why do you consider Tulsa your home? And I'm like, it's, it's the most formative years. I mean, yeah. 10 to 15, that was a, that was a very, lot of stuff happens in that range of 10 to 15. Yeah. So are you a Sooners fan or a Cowboys fan? Um, whatever word you said first, I'm not. Okay. Because, <laughs> see, I'm from Nebraska. Oh. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so whatever I said first, I am not either. No, you're even more so. Um, you know, you actually had uh, some com competitive games with the Sooners. We have not. <laughs> But they are Nebraska and Oklahoma are playing this year, and I feel I I, I know how that's going to turn out. But. Yeah, I know it's a, it's unfortunate. I miss Nebraska being in the Big Eight. I miss oh. the Big Eight. I miss having Colorado. I miss uh, Nebraska. I just I don't like the new setup of the Big Twelve. I don't. Why is West Virginia in the Big Twelve? Nothing against the school; they just don't belong in the Big Twelve. Yeah, exactly. They're not exactly Central America. No, man, when I was in record promotion, everywhere I traveled, as soon as I said I was from Nebraska, everybody always went, oh, dude, I just remember watching Nebraska, Oklahoma on Thanksgiving every year. It was year. big. It was one of the greatest rivalries. I mean, it was just a great, it was a great rivalry. I mean, it, was, it, it was a coaching rivalry. Tom Osborne, Barry Switzer. I mean, those were two masterminds, and it was a chess match between those two guys. Oh, so great. So, so did you come from a musical family? 
Um, my mom uh, played the organ, you know, the big old double tiered oh, yeah. Wur- Wurlitzer big fan organ. And she was yeah. just a monster at it. She was a monster. She played all the time and that was her escape. Uh, my dad uh, had a good singing voice, but not really musically inclined. Um, and my oldest brother, though, is the true musician of the family. And he uh, played trumpet for Johnny Taylor, B.B. King and Bobby Blue Bland for 20 years. Holy cow. Yeah. Man. Yeah, he, his stories, we'd go see him in uh, some interesting parts of town, you know, in diff- different cities. And I'd be the only white person in the club. And I was a teenager. Right. They'd sneak me in through the back and I'd sit in the front row. And uh, uh, Bobby Blue Bland, my brother's name is Skip. And Bobby Blue Bland gave me the nickname Little Skip. And so he'd look like, oh, look, Little Skip's here. <laughs> And people are going, why is that white boy here? And you go, <laughs> That's, oh, they, uh, these, these ladies, these uh, uh, large ladies would just grab me and smother me. And they'd be in their sequin hats and sequin dresses, dressed up t- to the nines for a big Saturday night out. And they would just, uh, they'd put me on their lap. And I was just, uh, I, I was just part of the clan. Ah, that is so great. So did you, do you play an instrument or I know you're a writer, but being, well, I'm a, I, I, that's a that's a strong word, a strong title. I I, I love to try to write stuff, but I, I I would never call myself a songwriter. I'm a writer of prose, uh, yeah. but songwriting is such an art form that I'm just not. I'm nowhere near there. I like to toy around with it, but I let you people do the work, and I just kind of hang on to the coattails. Um, it's a fascinating process for me to watch. Um, I'm more intrigued by the art form of it yeah. as a as an observer and as a fan than I am as a participant. Right, right. Yeah, it, it is It is fascinating. I mean, I, I love it being in a room with a, a great writer and just going like, how is your head working, dude? <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah. I've never been more scared to death when I sat down and was invited by Vicki McGeehee Lindsay L and David Fanning to sit down and write a song. And I'm like, Vicky, they were stumped. They didn't have an idea. And I told Vicky about an idea I had like a year before that. And right. she was running down the beach. We're in the Bahamas. And she goes running down the beach. She goes, Stormy, what was that idea about sunrise? And I'm like, sunrise tonight? She goes, yes, let's go write it. And I'm like, ah. and I was scared to death. I right. mean, it was just it was such an intimidating process. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Steele gave me the best advice ever. He says, don't ever self-censor yourself. There's no stupid ideas. And he told me this early on. There's no stupid ideas because I'd go, hey, how about? No, no, never mind, never mind. And one day I gave him the idea and he goes, yeah, I don't believe I'd have said that if I were you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> talk about being intimidated. I've, I would never cross that line with Jeffrey Steele, ever. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Steele co-writes are for people who deserve Jeffrey Steele co-writes. I am not one of those people that deserves a Jeffrey. People have waited decades to get a Jeffrey Steele co-write. But one time at Key West, I walked up to him and I was out of my mind, you know, because Key West takes you out of your mind. And I walked up to him at a pool party. and I went, Key West Jesus and the holy shit show. And he goes, <laughs> and he's smoking a cigar and he just laughed. He goes, that, that Jeffrey Steele laughed at <laughs> And turns and walks away. So I'm like, well, there it was. There was my shot. And then 10 minutes later, he comes walking up. And he goes, Key West Jesus and what? Is it the yeah. holy shit show? And he goes, Tuesday, my office. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> well, now I've done it. <laughs> and we wrote it. <laughs> Did it turn out good? I... I think it's it's it has nothing to do with me. Jeffrey put everything into this song. He played every instrument on the demo, played everything, sang all the parts, um, and we we wrote it though in about probably about an hour. But it's it's good. It's a Key West anthem. I I don't think it'll ever live further past the borders of the Keys. But for the Keys, it had they have their own anthem now. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So you ended up going to Cal State. Is that correct? Cal State Northridge. Northridge, yes. So yeah. what it's you- where the earthquake was. That's the best way people can remember it. It's where the big earthquake was in like what is it, ninety-four? Hmm. Ninety-three, maybe, maybe late ninety-three. What made you want to go out there? Well, I, my parents moved when we were in high school. I moved from Tulsa to Ventura, California when I was 15, okay. and which was really frustrating for me. It was great because California was awesome, and we, a small beach town to go finish up your high school was amazing. I mean, we'd play hooky and go surfing, and we'd 
played football and I was on the swim team and did uh, it, it, all the hallways of the school were outside. So it's like I went from this concrete three-story building in Tulsa, Oklahoma that was like a prison to basically a set of, of a Hollywood movie about Southern California and palm trees and seagulls. And it was amazing. But the frustrating part was I had already started my career in radio at 13 in Tulsa. Yeah. And I was working up the ranks and I had my own radio show and everything was great. And at 15, I moved out to Southern California and didn't have that mentor that took me under his wing as he did in Tulsa, Mel yeah. Myers. So I had to start over again and completely start over again and start. It was really frustrating, but it, it also taught a lot, me a lot of lessons. So, so how and why did you get into radio at 13? What was so attractive about that to you? It goes way before then. It goes to is earliest memories of just listening to the radio. The radio was my escape. Uh, the stereo was my escape. Eight tracks and albums were my escape. Um, the voices on the radio, as much as the music was an escape, it was the voices on the radio who had the knowledge of these songs, who had the, 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 the connections and had the microphone and had the power to play whatever they wanted and to talk about whatever they wanted. I would actually wait and rush through a song or couldn't wait for a song to get over just so I could hear the dude or the girl on the microphone talk about what we just played and talk about it. Yeah. And I was, I I had a transistor radio under my pillow all time. That's the way I went to bed listening for the music and and the dude. So we took a field trip in seventh grade, a career day. And they said, where do you want to go? And I said, "Uh, uh, radio station, my favorite radio station, right right on Skelly drive in Tulsa, 14 K 92 K. I listen to it every day. It's top 40 radio. We can learn a lot. I want to see what's behind the speakers, please, please. And I begged and we did. And we went to the, um, went to the radio station and it changed my life. I got to see where that microphone was. I got to see the person behind the microphone. I got to see the, the control board. I got to see the faders. I got to see the music carts hanging on the walls. I got to see, the windows, the the smell of smoke and coffee. And it, it was just pulled the curtain back on Oz for me. I mean, the entire life of just thinking radio was what my speaker looked like, not knowing that there was a world behind that speaker of how radio ran. And it just, it, it absolutely fascinated me. And it, it never let go of me. I went back the next day after the field trip, after football practice, still in my football pants and rode my bike to the radio station. I said, remember me? I was here yesterday. And they're like, um, yeah can I do anything? And well, I don't know. What do you want to do? I said, I'll do anything. I'll sweep the floors, whatever you need. Right. And they put me in a little um, news studio with a big window, big bay window that looked right into, if you look, if you think about the show Frasier, you know yeah. how she had the, uh, the, the little producer booth with yep. the window. That was me in the little news studio. And I got to see the DJs do their job. Front, it's like a, it's like an intern in medicine watching a surgery through the big window, yeah. and I was watching it happen and observing. And then they gave me the job of just answering the request lines at thirteen, and I thought I had the most powerful job in radio. Exactly. <laughs> you want to hear what? No, 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 no. I, I I'm not going to play that today. No, I'm not going to play that because I'm thirteen. Oh, you think you think you're caller number four and you win these tickets? I don't think so. <laughs> You're going to come down here and do what? Hey, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, was, it was a blast. I was a kid in the candy store. Uh, I remember the transistor under the, under the pillow thing. I had an old radio by the bed. It was a Philco. Oh, I love that. I used to listen every night to KOMA and I'd listen to Wolfman Jack. I, the, Wolfman Jack, because we were in Boston. We picked up a, on Golden 100. We listened to Wolfman Jack. I always thought he lives in Oklahoma. It was where, where, he was in Oklahoma City, right? KOMA, Oklahoma City. He was in Boston. Yes, but I, I didn't, I didn't know. Yeah, but, yeah, but you thought, you thought, yeah. If, yeah. When I lived in Boston, I thought he was, I thought he was in my speaker. I didn't, not even a city. I just thought he was in my speaker. <laughs> How do you get in there? Uh, this is Wolfman Jack. This is what we're doing, man. This is, we're, yeah, we're going to play the hits all day long, man. Wolfman Jack here. Hey, now. That's really good. <laughs> well, so <laughs> you go out to Cal State Northridge. And what, what's your major then? Like communications or? I started in radio, TV, and film because it made sense. Um, and I got really bored because um, I, at the time, after I graduated high school, um, I ended up getting a job through my brother at CNN um, in downtown Hollywood as a cameraman because he was working as a technical 
on all all sorts of the technical side of television. And he said, Stormy, I need your help. Can you drive down and, and shoot, you know, just this, the, the camera that's not the stationary camera. You don't have to do anything. You just have to stand behind the camera and make sure it doesn't fall over. I'm like, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. And ended up just getting on as a freelancer at CNN. So I was already working at CNN in television and learning everything about television uh, as a freshman in college at this point. And upstairs in the same building was Pirate Radio run by Scott Shannon, who's like one of the kings of morning radio in New York and L.A. And he was running this flagship station for Westwood One called Pirate Radio, which to me was another unbelievable experience of just watching radio happen before my eyes. I mean, they, they launched thinking it made every listener think that they were on a barge off Catalina Island and breaking into the radio frequencies. And that's why they called it pirate radio. I mean, the first break was, is this on? Is this on? This is pirate radio on a barge off Catalina Island breaking into the airwaves. And they just, it was a hair metal station. All they played was hair metal, Tesla, Warrant, Motley Crue, I mean, the Bon Jovi, it was like all hair, poison and white, white lion and all this stuff. And so I was working, I just barged in there just the way I did at the first radio station. I said, do you have a job for me? And they're like, um, you can answer request lines. Well, I can do that. As we would have it. I know how to do that. And uh, that's, I got to be friends with Brett Michaels and Sam Kinison because I worked the night shift and they'd all come off the bars or their clubs and just come into the radio studio, just have a place to hang. Cause they had a bar yeah. and they don't just, so and I'm at 18, 19 years old, hanging around the biggest radio station in the world. Yeah. And working at CNN. So the, the long story of that is I thought it would be important if I studied radio, TV and film in college, but then I realized I'm learning more working at radio and TV yeah. than studying it. And I got really cocky and said, screw this. I'm changing ma- majors. I'm never going to learn anything in this school. So I changed to leisure studies and recreation and taught wilderness survival for three and a half years. Well, which has served you well in what you've done for the last 20 some years. Yeah. So I can survive. (laughs) Here's how we make a fire out of rubbing old CDs together. (laughs) What's a CD? (laughs) I said old. Yeah. Well, so, um, man, I would, do you have any uh, Brett Michaels or Sam Kennison stories you can yeah, Brett, um, tell? Well, they, they were together at one point, uh, a limo driver that I got to be friends with just by answering the request lines. He'd always call me and tell me who he had in the uh, back of the car. And one time he goes, man, I got Brett Michaels and Sam Kennison. I said, well, bring them on up. Come on. Yeah. And they just came up and uh, Sam Kennison took over the airwaves. Cadillac Jack was on the air. And scared to death to turn the microphone over to Sam Kennison on live radio. He goes, I'm so fired. I'm so fired. And he probably should have been fired because Sam Kennison was higher than a kite. Brett was just Brett. And they just, I mean, Brett couldn't get a word in edgewise. It was just the Sam Kennison show. And just, oh, 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 we're here on Bible Radio. And it's a bunch of strippers around him. And I mean, it was just crazy. And flash forward, and Brett and I are at the Planet Hollywood opening in Nashville. Okay. A decade later. Right. And I run into him I'm like, Brett, it's Stormy Warren. He's like, what the hell are you doing in Nashville? I said, well, I was about to ask you the same thing. What are you doing here? And he goes, well, I'm opening up this planet Hollywood with Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis. And, and they were doing a big street concert to open up planet Hollywood. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. He goes, yeah. But also I'm meeting with some songwriters and producers. I think I'm going to do a country record. I mean, Brett Michaels is going to do a country record. He goes, man, it's all country music, man. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm going to do a country record. I'm like, he goes, can I get your number? I said, sure. And we traded numbers. And we've stayed in touch ever since. It's, it's been a beautiful relationship. One time for a TV show that I had on GAC called uh, Headline Country, I thought it'd be fun to have Brett Michaels co-host one of the shows with me. I would take him to the honky-tonks of Lower Broadway and show him the history and the legends of, of Lower Broadway and kind of give him a little history tour guide look at Lower Broadway. And then we flew out to Hollywood and he put me in the back of his convertible Mercedes and he gave me a tour of the Sunset Strip, the Roxy, the Whiskey, the Troubadour, you know, all of those bars and told his history. And so we just compared and contrasted, but they're identical stories. Just one was rock and roll and one was country. It was really interesting. And you still have all your own hair. (laughs) Hey, I can neither confirm or deny that I've never seen anything other than the hair, the bandana, or the hat. That's it. Yes. Yes. Well, so 
I know you headline country on GAC. You were there, I think, for 12 years. But yeah. before, like, when did you come to Nashville and why did you come? I mean, did you have a job lined up or did you just say, that's where I want to be? Well, in college, I was obsessed with, I mean, every time I say these three letters, it makes me sad because I miss it so much. TNN, the Nashville Network. Yeah. It was, I don't think anybody truly realizes the loss of that network. Yeah. When that went away, country music's hub, its nucleus, kind of got scattered. Even though Nashville's still here, the rest of the world was drawn to Nashville because of the Nashville network. And that was me in Southern California. I was hooked on Ralph Emery. I was hooked on Crook and Chase, uh, Williams and Ree. I watched everything they did. The the I even watched Skull Train. What did they call that? Or the, the Skull Train, the dance show that they did? Um, what was it called? I can't remember what it was called. Uh, cl- uh, club foot or skull train or wh- whatever it was called. That's what we, did, we watched. I think it's club and, <laughs> but uh crooked chase is where I wanted to work. And so I just set my sights on crooked chase and I cold called them a couple of times. I said, I, I would love to, you know, come visit. He goes, well, yeah, come on out and visit. And before I did that though, Charlie Daniels um, was my very first celebrity interview that I ever did. Man. And he was my childhood idol. The first album I ever bought as a kid was Million Mile Reflection with my own money to, for Devil Went Down to Georgia. And then I just became such a fan of his stories yeah. and his bigger than life hat and character and beard and band and the rock and Southern influences combining and crashing together into just this sound that I had never heard before. And yeah. it just blew me away. And so I was applying for a job as a producer for Showbiz Today on CNN getting out of the control room and trying to be a producer for entertainment news. And the producer didn't quite trust what I, that I could do it. So he says, why don't you pick a celebrity, do an interview. We'll give you a cameraman. We'll give you an editor. And you put together a two and a half minute story. If it's good, we'll air it. And then you can do another one. I'm like, okay. And I said, well, if I'm only going to have one shot at it, why don't I pick my idol, Charlie Daniels? And he happened to be uh, playing the crazy horse in uh, Santa Ana, California, Fred Reiser's Crazy Horse. And um, I went, I I looked on the back of Million Mile Reflection and there was a phone number on the back to the CDB offices in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. And I called and Paula Zygus picked up the phone and goes, yes, I said, it's Stormy Warren from CNN. Can I please interview Charlie Daniels? And she goes, CNN, did you say? Did you say CNN? Why, yes, you can interview Charlie Daniels. So a couple of years later, I get Charlie back on CNN. Every time he came through Southern California, I made sure that I got Charlie Daniels exposure on CNN, which was huge at the time. It was the news platform, the only news 24 hour platform. And so it was, it was gigantic. It wasn't politics. It was just news at the time. And, and so I got, every time he came through Southern California, I got him on and he was appreciative. And one time in the break room, he pulls me aside and goes, Stormy, you're finally getting pretty good at this. He goes, why don't you come to Nashville? I said, I, I want to go to Nashville. He goes, well, what do you want to do? I said, oh, I want to work for the Crook and Chase show. He goes, well, I know them. He goes, anything I can do to help, I would love to have you out there. But I, I really think it's time. He goes, Hollywood does not need you. It will chew you up and spit you out. Nashville needs you. And I think it's time you made the move. Two weeks later, I moved. So what year was this? 1993, November I, of 93. Man. And what was your first gig when you got here? Crook and Chase. Freelance uh, reporter for Crooked Chase. They didn't give me a full-time job, but they paid me $500 a story for two, $250 to start. And then it finally went up to $500 a story because it was a daily entertainment show. I mean, it was a hungry machine. It needed constant content. And so we had a, a, a posse, a stable of freelance reporters that just got paid per story. If you went out there and shot it, wrote it, edited it, and gave it to the show, you got paid. And I started doing so many of them that they had to hire me on full time because they were going broke paying me for the stories that I was doing. They ended up hiring me full time and paying me less, Less. (laughs) but at least I got benefits. Exactly. Well, um, how long was Sirius XM on your radar before you started over there? Sirius XM actually came to me. Um, John Anthony uh, who now runs No Shoes Radio for Kenny Chesney. Yeah. He, um, uh, we, he actually reached out to me and he goes, Stormy, we're really trying to up the profile of our country content on SiriusXM because it was relatively new. I think they had maybe seven, eight, ten, maybe 10 million subscribers at the time. And now we're up to 70 million subscribers. And so 
they were trying to up the profile and I guess they saw my name and that I was on television and found that attractive and said, would you yeah. be interested in doing coming to Sirius XM? And I lit up because radio was always my first love. And there was always a hole in my soul when I left radio and just did television. Television was great, but it wasn't radio. Yeah. And television is just too complex. I'm not a complex guy. I don't like worrying about the visuals. I just want the sound. Yeah. Uh, that's it's to me. And then flash forward and now everything in radio is visual again and we're all on internet and social media or whatever. So I'm like, God dang it. I can't get away from this crap. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, yeah, I just again, worked freelance for Sirius XM for a while and then they hired me on full time and then Sirius XM or Sirius and XM merged. And uh, it's a, it's a pretty big monster now. Yeah, no doubt. Well, how long have you been on the highway? Great question. Um, I would say, I believe it's close to 13, 14 years. Oh, man. Yeah. It's kind of home, isn't it? Yeah. I've, I, I, I keep saying 15, but then my boss keeps correcting me and he says, no, your files say only 13. But I think I did two years of freelance that they didn't count. So I thought I started in 2006. He says I started in 2008. I don't know. So you, you just answered it. I was going to say is that the spontaneity of flying out to do a TV show or a TV interview more comfortable to you or is the consistency of every day going to the highway more comfortable or, or do you like them both? I like them both. I, I never want to know fully what a day has in store for me ever. Right. I, I, I love waking up going that this day could change at the drop of a pin, it, 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 drop of a hat. This day could change. What I think this day is going to be could be completely different by the time night falls. And that's what I love. And I'm addicted to that. The, my kryptonite is routine. Routine is not my friend. It's like if the every if if Monday looks like Tuesday and Tuesday looks like Monday and then Wednesday looks like Tuesday and Thursday looks like Wednesday, that's when I start losing my mind. And I just I don't like that feeling. I love spontaneity is the perfect word. I like not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I love um, a big adrenaline rush is sitting down with somebody for an interview for the first time who I don't know and I should be really intimidated by. And just going, well, how's this going to go? Let's find out. And diving right in. And it's, it's, it's my favorite thing in the world. <sighs> Cheers, by the way. It is called drinking, right? Drinking and thinking. Thinking and thinking. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, that's funny you say that about interviews. Because I was going to ask you, have you ever had, and don't, don't tell me who it is, of course. Oh, I will. Okay. <laughs> have you ever had any really bad interviews and how long did it take you to figure out how not to take it personally and just move on but does it does it stay with you do you lay there at night and toss and turn and go what else could I have said or how else could I have approached it a hundred percent I'm gonna give you two examples and I don't mind mentioning their names okay um because one there was redemption surrounding it and we we ended up healing everything the other one I don't care so (laughs) I'll mention both um the first one was when I was at CNN and I became known as the country guy. So yeah. if Nashville, because of Charlie Daniels and because of uh, some connections I had made with some publicists and record people um, in Nashville, having yet to even visit the city, but just the, I became the country connect the back door, the underground railroad for PR people to reach out and radio people to reach out to uh, CNN. And I had a better chance of getting, that content on the air that if they went through the main talent booking department right. who didn't care about country music at all. So the talent booker calls me, he goes, Oh my God, Stormy, you're the country guy. Uh, we have a guy coming in. We're doing an album release uh, interview with him. Uh, we forgot all about it. He's actually on the elevator coming up here. Could you do the interview? I'm like, who is it? They said guy Clark. And I'm like, guy Clark. Oh, I know that guy. That's it. That's that Texas guy. That's that Texas singer songwriter guy which was the limit of my knowledge of what guy clark was at 18 19 years old i just hadn't done the research so guy clark comes in and he's sweating profusely and he's got a cigarette in his hand it's going which is just pure guy clark and he sits down at the uh in the chair and he just grumbling just so what are we doing here i said well we're going to talk about your new record he goes have you heard it and i said no sir i have not and he goes then how are we supposed to have a conversation about it? I'm like, just trying to do the best I can. He goes, fine. And we get about two questions in and he just rolls his eyes back and leans back, takes a big puff of a cigarette. 
son, why don't we do each other a big favor right now? And he starts taking his microphone off and he goes, I have no idea who you are and you sure as hell have no idea who I am. So why don't we just reset this and do this at another time and walks out of the room. <laughs> yes, sir. Mr. Clark, sir. I mean, it was devastating. Yeah. I've never, it, it, it really wasn't my fault, but I took it so personally. And I, I felt like I had failed one of the true legends of music by not doing the research. The greatest lesson, the greatest takeaway from that is that never happened again. I was never unprepared for an interview ever. Yeah. I, in fact, I, I, I had to be. I, if there was an album story we were doing, I made sure I listened to that album three times before we ever started the conversation. Track by track, knew the writers, knew the content, knew the vibe, the, the theme of the whole album. I knew it, it, the process of the how they made the record. And I needed to know that going in because I always had the ghost of Guy Clark in the back of my head. Mm. And he's still there. He's still there. Every single interview is the ghost of Guy Clark. The yeah. other one, which I don't mind mentioning his name, is Wayne Brady. Do you know Wayne Brady, the host of uh, um, Let's Make a Deal and uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Well, he was one of my comic heroes. I think he's one of the most talented human beings in the world. Yeah. So we sat down and did this interview and I'm like, man, so you, uh, you overcame a, a speech impediment as a kid and you, and now you're one of the biggest ad lib improv and music stars on the planet. What a, what an unbelievable achievement. And he goes, where did you read that? <laughs> um, in your bio, sir, it says you overcame a speech impediment. I had a stutter. Um, isn't that a speech impediment? No, you know what? What else? What else do you have to ask me? And so I said, uh, "Well, you know, the difference between being an improv actor and one who follows the script—do uh, you feel trapped by a script as an actor? Because you do both. And do you sometimes just wish you had the freedom to just do your own characters and do your own, uh, you know, improv uh, on set? Because are you kidding me? Is that your question? Because it's all acting." It's all acting. It's the same thing, whether it's improv or following a script, it's just acting. I mean, he was just a dick yeah. and through the whole thing. And for no reason, just uh, other than to be a dick. And it just, it was so devastating as a huge fan of his to, to see him act like that. And it just was like, I aired the whole thing. I, I, I juggled with it. Said, uh, should I, should I embarrass him by airing this? And I said, yes, if he's going to show his ass like that, I'm going to air the whole thing as is. And the response was huge. They're like, man, my God, what a jerk. And I'm like, so I'm guessing he's the one you don't care so much about. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, Guy Clark, we, uh, we uh, I mentioned redemption. I told him that story years later, and he gave me this hug, and he goes, "Sometimes I'm in a bad mood, son." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did a bunch more interviews after that, where he was just a sweetheart and a teddy bear and the nicest guy ever. But he goes, "Sometimes I'm in a bad mood, son." <laughs> But he's also just one of those guys you talk about the craft and being intimidated. And it's like, there's songs of his that you may not love or totally get or enjoy, but you just know these are some of the most well-written, well-crafted songs that are ever going to go through your head. And yeah. you just sometimes I, I listen to a guy like him and I just, I just feel guilty for not being in love with those songs because I know how great he was. Uh, Chris Christopherson, um, I, I feel guilty that I am not a diehard, 100% invested fan of Chris Christopherson. I feel like a loser, but yeah. I feel it's for the same reason. John Prine, I know John Prine's amazing. I just have not really immersed myself in John Prine. I can't get through the, the shell of John Prine to get to the, the meat in, in, inside. And I just, I haven't done it yet. Uh, Guy Clark, I have. Lyle Lovett, I have. Robert Earl Keane, I have. And I'm a huge fan of all those guys, but... Yeah. Chris Christopherson is one that I just, I can't crack that nut. Man, I used to watch The Highwayman and I'd go, Cash, Love, Willie, Love. Um, shoot, who's the fourth one? What Waylon. 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 I used to work with Waylon. Friggin' love him. RCA, yeah. yeah. His quotes are all over the RCA building still. <laughs> man, that's a storyteller there, man. Holy. Mm -hmm. But I just, I kept looking at Christopherson and I kept, I kept the same exact feelings. Like, I know, I know, I know he's this lauded, awarded, amazing writer, but it's just not getting past here, man. 
Bobby McGee, Sunday morning coming down, 100%. I'm in. I'm, yep. I totally get it. Entire Chris record, um, it's... I, I just can't do it. I, it's the same way I feel about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I cannot crack the Red Hot Chili Peppers nut. It, it, it's it's I, I, There are people who just worship that band, and I'm like, I don't get it. And I feel bad. I should. Yeah. There's a lot of those kind of bands that, like, you watch the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, and you go, I, I understand these people's place in the pantheon of music, but I'm not a fan. Like Neil Young. I just, I'll never get Neil Young. I understand why everybody loves him, but one of them ain't me. Right. And, and, and it took me a long time. I forced myself to love Neil Young. So I actually, I think that t- kind of, you have to do that sometimes. You have to, it's like your first taste of beer you wanted to throw up, but the more beer you drink, the more you like the taste. Uh-huh. And I think it's the same way with music sometimes. Yeah. If you really want to invest into an artist, you really have to take the time to dive in head first and just bathe in that music until it, it's part of your soul. And now that that beer is in your cornflakes and your pancakes, <laughs> everything. So you've seen so many artists and writers come and go because you've been here and been entrenched in all of that for so long. Like, who are some of the biggest surprises? And I mean this with all the love in my heart. Who are some of the biggest surprises that didn't make it to you? I have a uh, two heartbreaks and. Because you may not may you'll know one of the names you may not know the other one, um, but the, when I mentioned it to people who are just fans of country music and they go I've never heard of those artists I said that's exactly why it's so heartbreaking to me. Um, Anthony Smith, oh, big yeah. old long haired Anthony Smith. Yeah. Uh, that album was one of the greatest albums I've ever heard. That Mercury record that he put out that's with true. who invented the wheel and John J. Blanchard and uh, it's. God, how high did you go? I mean, this is, it's just a fantastic album and his voice was so good. And his storytelling was so epic. There was no doubt. Uh, oh, half a man. God, that song too. There's that album will still go down as the biggest heartbreak. Why that did not work and why he never got another shot with another record. Uh, I have no idea, but that's, that's one of the biggest heartbreaks. The other guy is a guy way back in the, um, God, what was that record? A Polydor. Polydor. I remember Polydor, Harold Shedd running power Polydor years and years ago. Um, Mark Luna. I thought he was the best vocalist this town had ever seen. And he went through about three dropped record deals and just became tarnished goods and never got another shot. And that, that devastated me because I still think he's one of the best singers that this town has ever seen. Man, I totally forgot about him. <laughs> exactly. That's my point. <laughs> it's funny. Um, you remember it, Country Radio Seminar, the New Faces show. Yeah. I remember sitting out there one year. I don't remember who I was working for, but in the back of the program, the CRS program was all of the rosters of all the New Faces show shows. And there was about one act in, from each year that you still knew who they were and what they were doing. And the rest of them, they were just, just gone. They came to town and got... Their dreams kicked in their face and they left. I mean, it got like Forerunner. Remember Forerunner? Half of my blood is Kane's blood. I mean, there's just like so many bands and God. I always loved, I guess it's because I worked with them, but I always really wish Yankee Gray would have been able to steer. Yeah, well, you worked with Yankee Gray, right? Uh, Yeah. They were fantastic. Yeah, they had, there was too much internal stuff. They couldn't, couldn't get over it and... Well, it's the same way with the duo Hannah McEwen. Hannah McEwen is just one of the greatest duos that this town has ever seen, too. But the same thing. They just couldn't hold their their crap together. And it was just like, come on. They're too good. Man. Uh, So who are some of the – I mean, we talked about some of the bad interviews. Who have been some of the greats? Like when you just – you think, like, not just, like, Charlie, but like the first time you talk to Waylon Jennings and you go, oh man, this could go either way. And then he just blew you out of the water in wonderfulness. Um, Waylon, Waylon was a good one. Waylon was a good one. He was, uh, uh, he called me pretty boy. He was this young little whippersnapper. And he just goes, am I doing that interview with pretty boy again? You know, it was, it, it was a term of endearment, but it was a, a typical just Waylon-esque way of saying things. And he's like, pretty boy. But uh, his storytelling was good. I, I, he cried in a couple of interviews and to see Waylon Jennings cry was, he still cries over the Buddy Holly crash. 
he can't tell the story without tearing up because he takes responsibility for it. He takes responsibility for giving up his seat and uh, on the plane. And to see decades later, that pain still just right at the surface was really stunning. And uh, his, his accusations and insults towards modern country too, are just some of the most legendary quotes I've ever heard. There's one, I, I don't care if this is a uncensored podcast. I still can't tell you what he said. <laughs> well, do you remember his CMA hats that said country, my ass music, my ass <laughs> George Jones had him too. It's George Jones and Waylon just country music, my ass. <laughs> you know, the uh, Waylon and the, the buddy Holly, the other thing that made him cry so much about that and keep it on the surface was that he got out of the plane and said, I hope you crash. Yeah. That's what he told that story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, obviously the interviews with the legends, uh, I, I hold those in such high regard. There's a special, I have a picture that's right there. Okay. Here, I'll get it and show it to you real quick. I call this Mount Rushmore. Minus the moron on the left. Um, <laughs> oh my so God. George Jones, Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. And it's, it was one of the coolest nights ever. And just those three and having so many interviews with the three of them separately over the course of my career and have amassed so many hours of content with those three people. I mean, they're, they're three of my all time heroes. Yeah. Golly. I did Buck Owens last interview. And uh, I've, I've mentioned this a time or two, but it's it's powerful. Um, I'd waited my entire career to get a big, life encompassing sit down interview with Buck Owens. I've got I've had short ones, but yeah. I wanted the one. I want to know everything about Buck Owens' life. And uh, I was there a day before his big statue reveal at the Crystal Palace at Bakersfield, California, where he had his statues of heroes. You know, Elvis, Hank Senior, Garth. And the George Strait, Buck, of course, he had to build one for himself because that's what Buck Owens did. <laughs> and I get a call from Jerry Hufford the day before the big reveal. He goes, Stormy, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He goes, Buck wants to do that interview. I said, when? He goes, like in about 30 minutes. I'm like, holy shit, I don't even have a cameraman. And he goes, I'll get you the cameraman from Buck Studio and we'll set it up in the Crystal Palace. Can you be there in 30 minutes? I'm like, uh, okay. okay. So everything that I wanted to prepare for, for this interview went out the window and suddenly I'm back at a Guy Clark moment. And I'm just like, shit, 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 shit. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? What, this is my, this is my great. I'm getting this interview. And so I've switched my brain off and said, do not do this as a historical retrospective of Buck Owens. Just have a conversation with him and see where it goes. And it was the right approach. And we talked about everything. And we sat down and the very first thing he said, he goes, Stormy, I hope you got some good questions. I'm like, why Buck? And he goes, cause this is the last one of these fuckers I'm ever going to do. Wow. Like and he, he kept his word and he kept his word. He died just a few months later. He knew he was sick and he knew he was well and he was depressed. And so he was wide open to answer anything. So I went for a question towards the end. I said, Buck, are you afraid of dying? Because I started to get the feel in this interview that he was very, he was, he was feeling vulnerable. Yeah. His mortality was, a, it was right in his face. I said, are you afraid of dying? And he goes, nope, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of not being around. <sighs> he didn't want to miss anything. And I just thought that was such a great perspective. He wasn't afraid to die. He just didn't want to miss anything. And so I just thought it was really cool. It was a great interview. It did, um, Chet Atkins last interview before he died, he actually said goodbye to the camera. He goes, so I'm just going to take this opportunity to say it's been fun playing for you all. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Wow. He goes, I said, you've overcome cancer, brain cancer for 25 years. He goes, not this time. And he was like, oh. and he had his guitar sitting next to him. I said, do you mind if you just, I mean, if, you know, pick a little bit for us. And he picks up the guitar, puts it on his lap, and his fingers weren't doing what they, he wanted them to do. And he picked, but to us, it sounded beautiful, but to him, it sounded like a, a cat being run over. And he just picked it. He goes, well, that'll be enough of that. I just set it down. 
just got chills, dude. That yeah, was he was crazy. he was amazing. I did one of Chris Ledoux's last interview. In fact, I, I one of the only people that really got the chance to interview Chris Ledoux. He didn't do a lot of interviews, yeah. and he took a he and I just hit it off and really enjoyed each other's company and and getting some real deep conversations with Chris Ledoux is fantastic. And George Strait, George Strait. Uh, my favorite, uh, I just got a chance to tell Garth Brooks this story just two weeks ago. We're having burritos in George Strait's studio in San, right outside of San Antonio, Texas. And we're talking about Garth Brooks and George Strait goes, Stormy, did I ever tell you my Garth Brooks story? I said, no. He goes, this wasn't even in an inter- interview. This is just over lunch. And he goes, yeah, we're, I'm in a festival and he's he's direct support for me. And I, there was quite a buzz going about this Garth guy. I mean, people are really talking that he's the next big thing. So I told Irv, my manager, I said, we never do this. We never get off the bus to watch anybody else. Right. I, I want to get on stage. I want to go watch Garth. So they're standing there side stage. And Garth is doing his thing, swinging off the cables and has the entire crowd wrapped around his finger. And he's sweating and screaming and doing all of his Garth things. And then in the middle of the show, at the peak of the show, the energy is so fever high. Garth sends his band off stage. He grabs an acoustic guitar, flops his legs over the apron of the stage, and it's just Garth and a spotlight and this crowd that is just hanging on everything and so revved up. Yeah. And he spends the next 30 minutes playing acoustic music for this crowd, and you can hear a pin drop. And George is looking at him. He goes, Irv, that'll never work. (laughs) (laughs) there's this long giggle from george he goes i I guess i was wrong (laughs) man that's okay okay well man can you look into your crystal ball because you've been around country music and country radio for such a long time where do you think country music is going i mean are we more uncompressed acoustic Chris Stapleton are we going more tracks electric stuff I mean I was just thinking about your Anthony Smith line and I wonder like now that Stapleton is is work and we're seeing some of that I wonder if that that record was just a timing issue you know 100% we weren't ready for Anthony Smith at that time just like we weren't ready for Big and Rich at the time um Big and Rich Big and Rich and I say this to everybody who has ears when country music's history is told Big and Rich will be a much bigger story than we're making them now they were more important to the history of country music than anyone is going to give them credit for they they defined and broke down the doors they crushed Everything that was normal, quote unquote normal about Music Row in Nashville and country music. And they were the ones who brought every influence in and brought in just a a circus into country music. And and I I don't think they will. I hope they get the credit they deserve. And I hope what they did with the Music Mafia to bringing community back together again, instead of everybody working uh, as, as an island and on their own. They actually treated Nashville as a music community again. And I think they are so important. And I think that they defined the end and the beginning of a cycle. And I think we've done that every 10 years in country music. If you look back at the history, there's every 10 years, there's somebody who drops a bomb on Music Row and it resets it. And I think we've done it with Shania. We've done it with Big and Rich. The Outlaws did it. Garth did it. I mean, we're seeing all of this. And I think Chris Stapleton did it in a way. Huge Luke Combs has done it in a way. Uh, the bro country did it. You know, they were, they were still kind of off the heels of big and rich, but bro country really did it. They dropped a bomb on music row. And I think we're going to keep seeing it. And I always say it has to be an upward spiral. I never want country music to just go in a straight line away from itself. Right. I want it to keep going back to itself as, but it's, and it could keep growing as long as it never fully gives up on coming back home. Yeah. I love that, man. Yeah. I was like, there. It cannot, we cannot get so far away from its roots that the tree falls. Yeah. I think, yeah. I don't know. I think sometimes we're, that tree is creaking. Oh, and we feel it every 10 years. We feel it every freaking 10 years. And then somebody like a Chris Staple who goes, Oh, Oh, that, that's why we do country music. Yeah. Yeah. I, I worked with the Dixie chicks for their first five years till they imploded. And I, I just remember Vince Gale in the sweetest way, just saying at the CMA awards, there's a new sheriff in town, boys. 
<laughs> it's true. I mean, I remember their showcase at the Rhyme, and you were there. I remember remember you there. And uh, Kathy Allman and you and me, and we're all at side stage watching, and we knew that the world just changed. Yep. They took the stage at that showcase at the Rhyme, and we're just like, holy sh! <laughs> what is about to happen here? And I traveled to Australia with them. Um, when they did their big Australia shows, yeah. were you on, were you on the Australia sh- trip? I no, wish- and just to see the global impact of what the Dixie Chicks were doing that no country artist had done or was doing at the time, it, it was unbelievable. So yeah, they it, it's so easy. You bring up the Dixie Chicks, how can we leave them out of the conversation of her dropping a bomb on Music Row? They oh, did it. Yep, and it was buck naked acoustic just wide open it's so funny man me and amy were riding down the road <clears throat> and we always like to she'll play me some song and I, I have to guess who the act was what's the name of the song and hopefully what record company they're on i love it and this acoustic intro came on and i was like oh, i recognize that who the crap is that and she just said are you serious you worked that record that's a dixie chick it's off the first album it's like holy crap I'll tell you one quick story. Yeah. Pick Enough up, about me. <laughs> no. Um, pick the girls up in Oklahoma City. We're starting the very first Monday of a promo tour. Have a 10-passenger van, whatever. They got all their guitars and everything and another guitar player. Get out of the station. And uh, Natalie jumps out. And I just happened to notice, I'm not trying to be a perv, but I said, Natalie, you're not wearing a bra. And she just jumped up and down and goes, Bart, I don't need one. It's like, oh, whatever. Let's go. Let's go do this thing. <laughs> so we went in and did the whole thing and everything. Five years later, she's pregnant. They're doing the meet and greets from those three tall director's chairs. Yeah. <laughs> she looks at me and she goes, look, Bart. I finally need a bra. And I said, <laughs> or no, she said, I finally got boobs. And I said, great. What do we have to do to get you a neck? <laughs> and Emily and Marty just about threw up. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you said that. It was oh my God. And two weeks later, I got fired. Yeah, well, that happens. Well, man, uh, do you want to do the old thinking and drinking lightning round? I love this. All right. This is the first thing that pops into your head, and it's just pow, pow, pow. Yep. What's your favorite book? Uh, Old Man in the Sea. Nice. Are you a bath or a shower guy? Shower. I don't think I've taken a bath since I was four. (laughs) Take a big bathtub. What's the last (laughs) gift you gave someone? um, Last gift I gave someone... It was a handmade fire poker with uh, the family uh, letter of their name. It was uh, out of metal, and they're really cool. And, and a friend of mine out in Idaho makes them, and I got two of them made for our neighbors here. That uh, they made the guy made one for me, and they really liked it. And so I had them made for them. Oh, that's killer! It was really cool. What is the first concert you saw? How old were you, and did you get a T-shirt? Cool Country Jam, starring. Tammy Wynette, Tanya Tucker, Jim Stafford, Glenn Campbell. I'm missing a couple of other ones. But, yeah, Cool Cigarettes sponsored the tour, and it was going around. It was just a, a, a traveling bunch of, of country music, and I, I fell in love with it. I mean, I, Glenn Campbell blew me away. Jim Stafford, I think, is still one of the most musical geniuses that we, that we have. I don't like spiders and snakes. I mean, Cow Patty. The, st- the song Cow Patty still is one of my all-time favorite. Looking for the one shot or daddy, yippee Cow Patty. <laughs> Sorry, I got to keep going. 30 shots rang out. 30 people fell. The killer and Patty missed each other, but they shot that town to hell. <laughs> God, I love that. But they, I, you know, do I have the T-shirt? No, but I still have the program. Do you really? I still have the program. Oh, that's awesome. That's that's impressive, man. Well, this is going to be a hard one. What's your favorite song? Well, this is easy because I haven't found one to top it. Is it Calvin? Um, I've looked, and I keep trying to find one that can beat the writing of this song. And it's a mutual friend of ours, and he's your publisher, I believe. Um, Jeffrey Steele, and the song is 
I'm trying to find it. And I'm trying to find it. Pat Green recorded it. Didn't do the greatest job with the song. And it got the lyrics got wasted. And I, I wanted to hear the lyrics because I couldn't hear them in Pat Green's recording. And I saw that Jeffrey Steele wrote it. So I contacted Windswept and I went, Is there a demo of Jeffrey doing I'm trying to find it? He goes, Yeah, it's also on his solo record. I'm like, oh my God, I gotta hear this. I gotta hear it. And it still is the most perfect song. I cannot find a song to beat it. And I've tried. I've really tried to find it. And there's some simple Willie songs. I mean, I love G Ain't It Funny, How Time Slips Away. That's uh, for simplicity and beauty. There's that. And then Jeffrey's completely on the opposite end of the spectrum. I don't think there's a song with more lyrics in it than I'm trying to find it. But it's it's a story. It's a middle-aged guy's story. And it's it tells the story of any middle-aged guy. Yeah. Uh, who's a father who's looking back, who's not necessarily super proud of who he is, but's trying to get better. Mm-hmm. And it's just really, it's the best written song I've ever heard. Yeah. That's awesome, man. If you were cremated, where would your ashes be spread? <laughs> My wife hates this answer, but it's the truth. Um, I mentioned uh, that I taught wilderness survival for three and a half years in college. And all of that was done up in the Sierra mountains. And there's a South Fork of the Kern River that I fished on, camped on. And it's like my my soul is the South Fork of the Kern River um, up in the high Sierras. And I, one time I was on a nine-day solo survival trip, just me. And I wanted to find where the South Fork of the Kern River came from. And I found it. Found it. And I found exactly the genesis of this of the, of the, and then I wanted to follow the Kern all the way up to the top because the South Fork obviously merged with the Kern. So then I wanted to follow the Kern all the way up. And I find it all the way up to the base of Mount Whitney, the spring coming out of the ground. And, and I went, this is where I want my ashes. I want them right here, right where the Kern comes out of Mount Whitney. And that's, that's it, my wife is like, you're going to make me hike your ass up to Mount Whitney. <laughs> You could say, well, you could just give it to one of those firefighting trucks and the, or airplanes, and they can just drop it out of the way. Yeah, just, just just drop it out of the, the big water. Yeah, that, that's not a bad idea. So, I mean, you are involved in music twenty four seven, but what are you listening to for fun? Uh, I, we were just talking about it before we started. Um, Delamitri is oh, yeah. one of my favorite bands out of Scotland, and uh, they after a long, long, long wait. I, I mentioned I worked at Pirate Radio. I actually got their song um, kiss this thing goodbye up to the top 10 on the pirate radio charts. I cheated a little bit, but I got them up there because I love that song so much. And uh, they've just been an incredible band and an incredible part of my life. And they just put out their first album in at least 10 years, fatal mistakes. And it, I'd listened to it till five o'clock this morning. And I, I'm so infatuated with them, with their songwriting, with their voice. It's just, they're really good. There's another band. They're not the most precise band. I mean, it's, it's not like listening to Fish. It's the opposite of Fish, but I love them. And it's a band called The Samples, Sean Kelly and The Samples. Uh, they're out of Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the early 90s, they started and they just have this jam band style. It, it kind of sounds like Sting and Kermit the Frog mixed together for his vocals, but it, but it, it's, it's fantastic. It's sloppy guitar work, but beautiful. And it just, the sound just changed changed me and i listen to them all the time as well that's awesome man well can't forget toad the wet sprocket too i love toad the wet sprocket so you're kind of a jam band guy or i'm an everything guy but i i do like that i don't like the super i don't like the jams that go on for like 40 minutes yeah but i like a song to breathe i love instruments i love instrumentals i love in country music when producers and songwriters have the balls enough to let a song breathe at the end Oh, and let us think about what we just heard. And nobody does it enough. I mean, Dirk Bentley did it with a lot of leaving left to do. And I was just like this. Yes. You need a sail off. Some songs just deserve a sail off to let you absorb what you just yeah. heard. And it, it just take off. And Stephen Wilson Jr. is doing a lot of that right now. And some other artists are doing it. And they're. And they go on for like. 40 minutes Grateful Dead style that bores me but I, I do like to see musicianship in songs I wrote with Warren Haynes one time and he had just oh. done with a uh, an Allman Brothers gig at the New Orleans Jazz Festival and I said what'd you play 40 45 minutes he goes dude we played a little over four hours it's like 
I got <laughs> no. And that was one song. <laughs> well, I liked it. That was like four songs, right? But it's probably like. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. I I enjoy the musicianship, but after a while, it's like, all right, I got I got to pay a babysitter or something. Right, exactly. But I like the ones that uh, like. I have an idea that Jeffrey and I have talked about, and I'll, I'll put it out there for the world because I think the world needs to hear this. And I, because I think we, you will appreciate this. So, you know, he, he wrote Gone for Montgomery Gentry. And if you've ever seen him play it, it could either be three minutes or 40 minutes, depending on what his mood is. Right. I think he does a tour of one song where he just does one song for an hour and a half, and it never stops. Right. But in the middle of it, it breaks down to all of his other hits, everything else. And so it turns into a, a celebration of all of his music and all of his influences, but it is bookended and sewn together by Gone. And it never stops. There's not a break in it. He, can and be- I, it, it, he lit up and he goes, now you got me thinking. And I said, nobody's ever done it. Nobody's ever toured one song before. He could also start Gone in E. And then when he goes to like G, play other songs. And yeah, those are done. Do another verse and a chorus of Gone in G, and then go to A and do the same exact thing. And he could, yeah, I like that, man. Nobody's ever toured one song before, and I think he needs to do it. It's like, it, let's just brag about Jeffrey for a second. You talk about an artist that should have had a shot as an artist and a, a full on recording career as an artist, not just a songwriter and a cool guy to see play live. And I, just, I mean, he really, yeah. he's. He's talk about underrated. There's no one better on stage than Jeffrey Steele. Yeah. There's no one. No one. There's no rock act better than him. There's no country act better than him. There's no, nobody does it better than him. So I think a one song tour of Jeffrey Steele is, would be the shit. (laughs) I love that idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what haven't I asked you about? Ah, man, we've covered a lot of ground. What do you got? Um, Gosh, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, we've covered the future of country music. We've covered the past. We've covered uh, – one of my favorite quotes from Marty Stewart is – and he tells everybody just getting into country music. Uh, he goes, find what you like now and then work backwards. Hmm. Find what you like on country radio now, and if you want to learn about country music, work backwards. Find out who influenced that artist. Yeah. Find out who influenced the artist before them, and work backwards, and then you will find such a beautiful story of country music and a journey that you'll be so thankful you did. Instead of just uh, you know seeing the surface of the water, take a deep dive by going backwards. I thought it was the best advice to tell anybody. That's awesome. I'm always a little, a little, because I'm set like you, just a historian of of the format. I'm always a little disappointed when a 20 year old guy says his biggest influence is Dan and Shay. And I love Dan and Shay, but they have, it's like, no, there was music before those guys. I mean, they're fantastic, but believe me, there was other music. Yeah. Why don't we go back to the uh, Everly Brothers then? then? Then now we're talking. You like Dan and Shay? Find the Everly Brothers. <laughs> Man, where can people find you? What are your socials? The socials, Instagram at Stormy Warren, Twitter at Stormy Warren, um, Facebook. I'm, I'm not a Facebook guy. I just can't. I don't like Facebook right now. I never did like Facebook, but I really don't like it now. It's where the anger lives. And yeah. I'm not an angry guy. And it's just, I did, I did something really interesting. I haven't been on Facebook in probably two months. And I just looked at our channel page, the highways channel page for Facebook just last night. And I was so disappointed because Twitter, people say Twitter's angry. I don't think Twitter's angry. I think they just bring up conversations. And I think it's, there's a lot of, I learn a lot from Twitter. Instagram is a bunch of bullshit, but it's fun to flip through. Yeah. Uh, TikTok is just mindless entertainment, but yeah. it's, it's there. But Facebook is just anger. Yeah. I mean, do you, you say black and it's white. And you say, uh, go and it stop. And it's, there's nothing productive about Facebook except a vent for a bunch of idiots. And uh, maybe people stay in touch if they use it the right way. And if they use it the right way and they're not angry, then all, uh, then Facebook is your jam. But as far as a place for any kind of dialogue, it's, it's the worst. Facebook is, is uh, (laughs) me and Jeff had this conversation and he goes, here's, here's what I get tired of. What kind of car do you drive? A Ford? Why do you hate Chevy? Mm-hmm. Don't, 
I don't hate Chevy. My brother drives a Ford. My dad drives a Ford. Yeah. They're great. Well, what's the matter with Chevys? And right. that, that's what Facebook is. Yeah. And it's, I'm tired of it. And, and I think the world's tired of it. It's, it's old. And, and I, I don't think anybody actually means what they're saying. I think it's just a, it's a sport. It's a social media sport just to troll people. And it's, and, and, and on Twitter, it's the same way. It's like somebody, somebody takes a shot at you. All you have to do is look at how many followers they have. And chances are it's under five. Right. You know, and it's like they invent accounts just to attack people because it's sport. Yeah. And it's this is fun for them. This is a this is their way of just being. I don't know what they're exercising, but it's not not good. Mm. Well, man, I'm going to get out of your hair. Thank you so much. Oh, this I'm is awesome. That was a very fast hour. I know it, dude. I'm going to say goodbye, and then we'll actually say goodbye. Okay. All right. Thank you, Stormy. Thank you, Bart. Great job. <laughs> Thanks.